first official debate for the leadership hopefuls of the Canadian Progressive Conservative Party goes in our city tonight. We'll get a preview with Melissa Cowett. Rick McIver, Alberta's Minister of Municipal Affairs, joins us to tell us about the flooding situation in northern Alberta. Hundreds of people have been forced from their homes. And Canada, are we settling for half measures on drug price regulations? Tonight we have the first official leadership debate for the Conservative Party of Canada. All six candidates will be on stage for the first time. Now, we've talked a lot about what happened in the first official debate. Only five. Patrick Brown wasn't there. Melissa Cowett, who uh, is a frequent guest here on the show, Western Canadian public policy professional and the principal of MC Consulting, joins us now. Uh, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Shay. It's great to be here. So this slight change in format, I mean, we've got one extra candidate, Patrick Brown, joining the dais. Uh, It's the first official campaign, whatever that means. Are you expecting it to be different than what we saw last week? Yeah, so last week at the Canada Strong and Free Network debate, um, the first sort of unofficial debate, um, for those who don't know, that's associated with the Manning Centre. It's the new Manning Centre, so a conservative sort of family think tank, that kind of thing. Um, The debate last week was really heated. It's not surprising to me because there are are a lot of very strong um, voices up on the stage. Um, But I think it's going to be even more heated because Patrick Brown, who was not on stage last week at the Manning Centre debate, um, has been taking a lot of shots at Pierre Polyev and has been not shying away, I guess, from the fight. So you're going to see um, Patrick Brown, Pierre Polyev, and um, Jean Charest, probably the three most feisty candidates up on the stage, um, with Faber, um, Lewis, and Atchison sort of jumping in as they can. But those three really are probably going to dominate a lot of the discussion when it comes into rebuttals, et cetera. It's kind of interesting, because I had Jean Charest on yesterday, and I, I don't, I'm not disputing what you're saying. I think you're probably right. Right, that's the way it ultimately will go. But he was talking about it and saying that's what he doesn't want to see happen. This is what he had to say when I talked to him yesterday in terms of what he'd like to see tonight. Tomorrow night, it uh, falls on all of us to talk about the future and about the policies that we want for the future of the country. That's what the discussion should be about tomorrow night. That's where I want to be, and I'm, I'm hoping that Mr. Polyev will be there too. So he's laying the blame at the feet of Pierre Polyev in terms of how raucous it got last time. But it sounds to me like he would like to steer it out of that area. Who benefits with that kind of a knockdown, drag him out fight on stage? I think Sherry would probably like to do that, but I think in order for him to be competitive in the debates, he's going to have to get down and dirty a little bit because what happens in debates if you are sort of too passive and too above the fray when you're in a situation where there's a lot of that going on is you end up looking weak, even if objectively speaking, you're trying to be sort of the adult in the room, if that's sort of um, the goal. I think that um, Polyev gains the most from that style of politics. It's the style of politics that he's been very successful with. He's, he's not, he's been accused of being a populist. He's very intelligent and very smart. He's an excellent communicator. So I wouldn't paint him fully with a populist brush, but he does deploy a lot of those tactics in terms of, um, you know, hammering on key messaging, knowing who his base is. So I think he does benefit the most in those settings because I just think that he is the best at winning in those settings like he's really good in that style of format so he can come out of the debate looking really strong if the other um, candidates opt to try and be a little bit more calm and and more above the fray if you will yeah he's certainly uh like you say you're right and if you go back to the last session in the house of commons and how he was characterized as sort of the attack dog the pit bull and he was 
awesome at that. He really, really is effective, you know, in sort of, as you say, being a communicator and grabbing headlines. He's extremely effective at that. So we'll see how it plays out tonight. Um, he seemed to have the crowd behind him in the last one. Jean Charest went after him for supporting the Freedom Convoy, and he was booed uh, in response for that. Uh, how important is the TV audience versus, or the live stream audience, whatever this may be, versus the live audience? How much does that play into it? I think that it can play into the sort of energy in terms of how the candidates feel up on the stage and perhaps, you know, some of the commentary that happens after. But the only thing that ever matters in leadership races is membership sales. And so you can be a real sleeper cell in terms of organization, which is, I think, you know, going back to the debate last week, I think that was Patrick Brown's approach. He was sort of saying, you know, the membership cutoff deadline is June 3rd. I only have a few more weeks left to sell memberships, which is the the only way that you win this thing. So he sort of has positioned it as he wants to focus more on that. So all of this is, you know, theater and it's important to have debate so that members can hear what's going on and so the public can get a sense of what's going on. But the only thing that ever matters is membership sales. So all of this can perhaps add to the energy of the campaigns, but unless the campaigns translate that energy into membership sales, none of it matters. Interesting. Uh, In terms of the overall impact of these debates and at least the tone in the first one and if it carries over or not, I know there's a lot of concern. Jean Charest was talking about it yesterday. Peter McKay was talking about it on the West Block this weekend. Uh, Roman Baber at the last debate. um, And you mentioned uh, Scott Atchison. This this is what he said on the debate stage last week. Every time I hear a conservative talk about some conspiracy theory, I realize that eh, there's another group of swing voters in the GTA that just are not going to come our way. Because all we do is yell and scream at each other. We're witnessing it now. I actually like all these people on this table. They're on this dais as well. They're good folks. And here we are, calling each other names. What Canadian is going to trust this lot? How big of a concern do you think that is for these candidates? Obviously, it is for him. Jean Charest has talked about it. As I said, uh, Roman Baber was talking about it as well. Um, Do you think that sentiment will be the overriding thing? We need to go to a general election after this. We need to be careful, or is it still going to be all guns blazing tonight? You know, I would have said that that would have been a bigger risk if we were in a situation where we could be expecting to go to the polls as early as um, early 2023 in a typical minority situation. But the fact that the Liberals and the NDP have this confidence and supply agreement, which is likely going to keep the Liberals in government until 2025, I think changes the calculus on that. What what will happen for a candidate like Polyev or, um, or, or any of the other ones that are being a little bit more outspoken is that you now have time between when the leadership vote for the CPC is going to happen in September of 2022 to when the next general election is going to happen to change the tone. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but it's easier now that there is a longer runway. Yeah. Pierre already has um, Pierre already has a seat, for example. So if he deploys the tactics he's deploying, which, by the way, work within the CPC in the current base that we have, if he then switches to sort of changing his tone after if he is successful, he has a longer runway, as anybody else would, to change the channel on that tone. But you'd have to make that switch quickly. And, and sometimes it's hard to do because obviously conservatives are infamous for eating our own. So that shift has to be done super strategically so that the people who thought they were getting one thing don't 
don't um, get mad about the fact that they got something else, which is what happened with O'Toole and why we're even in this situation right now. Um, last one for you. A lot of people saying, you know, we didn't hear a lot about issues. We didn't hear about cost of living. We didn't hear about war in Europe. We didn't hear about all kinds of different things that I want to know where the Conservative candidates stand. Do you think there's a chance that those issues will play a little more prominently as these debates go along? I think they will, and I think that the moderators will um, will bring those issues up. But the reality is, is that um, in debates, when you get into the sort of free-flowing rebuttals, you're going to hit on issues that are wedge issues. So you're going to hit on um, soundbite-type issues. So Polyev is going to talk about um, Sharae's work with, um, with Huawei. Sharae is going to talk about Polyev not opposing Bill 21 and the trucker convoy protest. Um, you know, Atchison's going to talk about um, broadening, Atchison and, and Brown are going to talk about broadening the base and how we can't do that if we have social conservatives um, leading the party as as in um, Babert and, and Lewis. So as much as the moderators will try to, to make the debate that way, it will inevitably go back to issues that are easy sound boys and bites yeah. and zingers because that's really what debates end up serving as in the media afterwards. Exactly. That, that's how it works. You're absolutely right. Melissa, great analysis as always. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. That's Melissa Cowett. Melissa is a conservative strategist, um, and she joins us frequently. She's a Western Canadian public policy professional, and she's the principal of MC Consulting. And I think she's right. I, I, you know, she really breaks it down, and I think she's spot on when it comes to her analysis of how debates fit into this. They'll get the headlines, um, um, but like she said, you know, membership sales and all those sorts of things are probably more important than what happens on the debate stage. But uh, make no mistake, these debates are closely watched, and uh, we'll see how it plays out tonight. Uh, that debate coming up tonight uh, in Edmonton, all six candidates on the dais for the first time, Only five last time, Patrick Brown will join the fray. Going to get an update on a situation taking place in the north of our province right now, some flooding um, affecting uh, several hundred people, as a matter of fact. We've got flooding uh, that, as of yesterday, had led to a third northern Alberta community issuing a local state of emergency, that is... Paddle Prairie Métis Nation Settlement, along with uh, Chate and Little Red River Cree, have all issued local states of emergency due to localized flooding. This is as of yesterday. To get the very latest, we're going to chat now with Rick McIver, the Alberta Minister of Municipal Affairs. Uh, Minister, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us today. Hey, good morning, Shay. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, uh, just give us an update. What is the is the latest on this situation up around high level? Is it still three communities with states of emergency? Has it grown? Has it gotten better? Uh, I would say uh, a little of each. Uh, you reported it accurately just now. There's three states of emergency, Chate, uh, Little Red River Cree, and uh, Paddle Prairie Métis Settlement. You uh, you got that right. Okay. Um, and they all have a little bit different story. Um, on the Chate, it's uh, two or three days. They've been on high alert because of snow melt, and the... Uh, the risk uh, should stay in place. We is it's estimated for another six or seven days. Uh, emergency social services is on site. The uh, Alberta's Emergency Management Association folks are uh, are on scene. Uh, they set up a, a, a center in the high old RCMP building in, in high level, a place for people to go. Um, Rainbow Lake has set up a uh, camp uh, for 70 people and another 125 uh, they can accommodate. Um, uh, 
there's testing for COVID-19. There's a, there's a lot of things uh, being being uh, not even being it's already in place a lot mm. of things and then we're changing as required uh and as, as as you and your listeners can imagine when in cases of floods and things like this the situation can change in some cases minute by minute uh the jean d'or little red uh, river cree uh, it's i'm told it's stabilizing and the water is now receding it has by as much as two feet but there's still uh, some basements flooded. Uh, there was one person air- airlifted out. Uh, there's some highways that are uh, underwater. I think it's Highway 58 and is, uh, is hampering ambulance service, so we're dealing with all of that. Um, Paddle Prairie. Uh, I'm told no evacuations are required at this time. Three impacted bridges that belong to the settlement are uh, are uh, uh, have damage or they're interfered with. Municipal uh, looking through municipal affairs and the rest of the government to do assessments on that. Uh, there's a CN rail line failure in the settlement. Uh, there's heavy equipment being brought in to put that right. Uh, yeah, so the situation's evolving. There's people there where our, the province's emergency management system is in place and the local municipalities, as is normal in local states of emergency, are in place. And everybody, I think, is doing their job. Yeah, Minister, are you confident everybody's being taken care of? I know there was some discussion earlier this week about, you know, about 1,100 people impacted. High Level says they've had almost 700 register as evacuees in their communities, and they're saying, you know what, these people are sleeping on mats in our, in our old arena. It's not ideal. I mean, um, are you confident that everybody is receiving the supports that they need at this time? Yeah, you know what, Shay, uh, being evacuated is never going to be as comfortable as being at home and i'm not i'm not making light of that i'm, I'm just saying that the uh, uh there's a place for people to be you know warm and dry and out of the weather and at a place for them to sleep and and never there's be food of food and medical care available um it's not like home shay i can tell you that no, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, the discussion was that they had talked to the province years ago about getting a, a larger rec centre that would be used in, in situations like this, and, and those calls weren't answered. So I think, you know, the, the, the question is, has there been neglect of that region of the province? Are, are you confident so, that they're getting what they need? Uh, yeah, there hasn't been neglect. What uh, You know what, we uh, the municipality asked for... Uh, Sixty or eighty million dollars for a new rec center. We did not uh, choose to fund that. It was uh, kind of outside of what we normally fund on things. Uh, but uh, there's but more to the situation now. People are, are being looked after. We'll we'll add uh, resources and and uh, places to stay and whatever else we need to add as required. That's uh, it's what. I'll, Fortunately for you and your listeners, uh, I'm not doing it. Uh, people that work for me in Alberta Emergency Management that are trained professionals, that are very good at doing this, that have a plan in place, that uh, have experience doing this, are on the job. Uh, I'm just, I suppose, the mouthpiece that you get to talk to. But people way more skilled, talented, and able than I are looking after folks there, and I feel very good about that. Well, it's always a delight to talk to you. We do appreciate it. Before I let you go, can I ask you about the State of Edmonton address that was given yesterday by the mayor, uh, Amarjeet Sohi? I'm sure you've heard it, but just for our listeners, saying that um, we're being treated unfairly compared to Calgary. Edmonton deserves a fair deal. Please work with us. We are your capital city. We make outsized contributions. Please stop holding 
Edmonton's economy back. Now, I know you were in the audience. You heard the comments live. <laughs> Holding Edmonton's economy back, Minister, he's blaming the province, and I guess you as Minister of uh, Municipal Affairs, uh, for this. How do you respond? Yeah, well, the mayor, frankly, didn't really make his case. Uh, he, he talked about Edmonton getting less money through the Municipal Sustainability Initiative, the MSI, than Calgary. But the mayor knows. He knows this very well. The funding of that is formula-based. Uh, it's based on, amongst other things, population and uh, assessment. Uh, Calgary's population and assessment is different than Edmonton's, and th- that fully explains the difference in MSI funding. He knows that. Um, and and in, fair, you know, in fairness to the mayor, part of his job is to complain to the province to try to get more money for a city, and, and on that count, I would say he was doing his job right. But um, and we'll, I'm sure the mayor and I will have more discussions, but he didn't really make his case yesterday in front of the, the room there because on, on the big the big dollar complaint about MSI, he knows very well it's, it's formula-based and, and they are being treated exactly the same as Calgary using exactly the same formula. Minister, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure, Shay. Uh, it's been nice. Thanks so much. You bet. That is Rick McIver, who is the Alberta Minister of Municipal Affairs. Uh, yesterday we were talking about price controls, and there's a lot of talk about that lately, right, with uh, soaring inflation and things like that, and uh, Jagmeet Singh talking about how grocery stores are gouging and um, oil companies are making massive profits. The Premier was even talking about that this week. Um, and we got into a discussion about whether or not we want set government controls over pricing. Now, we accept it in some areas, one of them being drug pricing. That's something that um, we all seem to be okay with. And there's actually some new regulations and rules uh, around medicine and patented medicine and things like that coming into effect in our country this summer. Been a long time coming in some of these cases. To walk us through what's happening, uh, we're going to chat now with um, Steve Morgan. Uh, Steve is... Oops, just a second here. Steve... uh, Thank you for joining us, Steve. Appreciate your time. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, Steve is a professor of health policy at the University of BC and has served as an expert advisor to the World Health Organization on pharmaceutical pricing and innovation. So, Steve, let's just start by getting sort of the lay of the land of how things work in Canada, or have worked, I guess, around drug pricing and and setting prices for drugs. Yeah, you know, I think it's a bit of a complicated story. And so there's, to simplify things, uh, I like to tell people to look at the back of a door when they go into a hotel room and see the price that hotels list on that. It's called a rack rate. Well, right. Canada has regulated essentially that rack rate for prescription drug prices uh, actually for 30 years now based on the idea that the, the list price of a prescription drug in Canada should roughly be the same as the list price in other high-income countries. And actually, for 30 years, we've been using countries that were known to have high drug prices, but also known to have lots of pharmaceutical investment, with the idea that if we limit our prices to their levels, maybe the pharmaceutical companies would invest here in Canada. Hasn't quite worked out that well. We have high list prices of medicines in Canada. That is, the rack rate for our drug prices is quite high by global standards. And yet we don't actually have the level of research and development that we wanted. So the government's been talking for many years now about changing that system um, and made some really innovative proposals this last couple of years. They're only going forward with some of the proposals um, and not the whole package. So there'll be some relief, perhaps, for some drug prices, 
but not quite the dramatic change that many people were hoping for. Okay, so just uh, for a little clarity around that, when you mentioned the rack rate of a hotel room, the, the one on the back of the door we all know is ridiculously high. <laughs> and yeah, very absolutely. few people actually pay that rate. If that's the bar that we're setting for drug pricing, it seems like we're not doing that well. Exactly. It, it is, uh, and, and we're not alone. There are 23 inco- uh, OECD member countries, so, so relatively high-income countries, that all do the same thing. We all say, well, we can't really control drug prices that effectively because, you know, manufacturers of medicines are pretty sophisticated in their negotiations and and how they play the game. So all we'll do is look at our neighbor and uh, and assume that that if if our list price is the same as theirs, then we're doing okay. But so many countries now do that, that the pharmaceutical manufacturers did what automakers do and what hotels do, which is to post these ridiculous list prices that nobody will ultimately pay. Everyone's left to negotiate better deals. And in high-income countries with universal health systems like the United Kingdom and Scandinavian countries and Australia, New Zealand, and several other European countries, they use the purchasing power of their health system to negotiate secret prices that are way better than those rack rates. Um, but Canada was going to try to regulate the secret prices in Canada. And unfortunately, the federal government lost uh, one key court case concerning that regulation. And then I think they frankly lost the political will to push back and, and really do that. So we've left the confidential prices, the final prices that insurance companies or drug plans from the provinces will pay, that's still now unregulated. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, um, whoever pays what, whatever they can negotiate, that's what happens in this country. And, and we're left essentially with new list prices, new rack rates. Yeah. Um, they will be a little lower in Canada. But they will still be ridiculous, particularly for specialty medicines for very serious conditions like cancer and enzyme replacement therapies and autoimmune diseases. The price tags of those drugs can be literally hundreds of thousands of dollars per year, and very few countries around the world actually pay those list prices. Is that what this primarily is about, Steve? These, you know, we all see it like, you know, it's $100,000 a month to keep this little guy alive. And, you know, and they grab news headlines, obviously, because people care about it. Is it those kinds of isolated cases that we're talking about? Or is this right across the board? You and I go into the pharmacy for, for who knows what. Well, it, it, it is across the board. But the, the greatest um, concern in, in Canada and, frankly, around the world is those drugs to treat very serious conditions for which the patients have no alternative. Well, you've set up what is kind of tantamount to a hostage taking. Nobody wins. You know, the, the obviously governments want to provide access to the treatment, but manufacturers will ask extraordinary sums for those treatments. And then behind closed doors, they'll negotiate some compromise. And the regulations that Canada was trying to pass but unfortunately failed was to set a limit on essentially the price per year of life gained from treatment um, that could be charged in the Canadian market. And they failed to do that under legal and political pressure. 
Um, and so we are now still, just like every other country, faced with these closed-door negotiations over what is a fair price or what is the, the maximum price um, uh, you know, Alberta or other provinces or Canada as a whole will pay for those things. I guess that's the question because, I mean, surely the pill itself isn't worth a million dollars a year, but of course we know there's research, there's development, there's all this stuff that the drug companies say, that's what you're paying for, you're not paying for the drug. Is there a way to, to actually have these companies justify or give us a cost breakdown that governments can hold up and say, okay, this is why we're paying this much? I mean, does that exist? Yeah, there isn't yet. And actually, I sat on an expert advisory committee for the World Health Organization. I still do because we meet every two years to talk about what they call fair pricing of medicines worldwide. Um, what One of the things that people would like to see is clear, transparent accounting of exactly how much did the, the firm who holds a patent for a new drug actually pay to research and development develop that drug? And then how much did we as taxpayers through our granting agencies, whether it's the big NIH in the United States or the CIHR in Canada, but also through our tax subsidies, um, how much did we actually pay for the R&D? And it turns out that the, the research on this suggests that an overwhelming majority of medicines come to market based predominantly on basic scientific discoveries that you, the taxpayer, paid for, but the patent is owned by the firm. And so there is global discussions about being more transparent about research and development costs and who bore those costs. And there is global discussion about setting a limit on what is a reasonable price to charge for any life-saving treatment when you realize that um, those sorts of treatments can set up uh, you know, extraordinarily difficult ethical and clinical sure. decisions around, of course, we want to save lives, but we can't sacrifice the rest of our healthcare systems or the rest of our social programs for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's an awful position. Um, so back to where we started, what are we going to see uh, this summer? What, you know, what gains did the Canadian government manage to make on this file? Well, we changed uh, from looking only at seven high-income countries with high drug prices as our benchmark to looking at 11 countries with more comparable health systems and, low, and slightly lower pharmaceutical prices. So you can expect to see on brand-name drugs some list prices to come down a little bit. Um, however, most of the ones for which this really matters, again, like the high-cost new medicines, our provincial drug plans are already negotiating confidential deals that would be below the new list prices for Canada. So unfortunately, we're not going to see hundreds of millions of dollars saved by our provincial governments, but we will probably see um, patients that are uninsured, and unfortunately there's far too many of them in Canada, they will get a little bit of relief if they are still filling prescriptions at their own cost um, at what is essentially that hotel rack rate, an mm -hmm. incredibly inflated price, it'll be just less incredibly inflated. Still unreasonable, but but a little less unreasonable. Okay, progress. Is there a hope for more progress down the road? Is this the first step, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think this is a part of what of an overall package of policy reforms that Canada has been contemplating and announced that it will move forward on. The most important of these is moving forward with a system of universal prescription drug coverage for Canadians, a national pharmacare program, as they've called it. Um, along with that, developing a new organization called the Canadian Drug Agency, which will be responsible 
essentially for making those negotiations on what we will actually pay for medicines. And if it is negotiating on behalf of all 36 million Canadians as an, a true national program for funding medicines of proven value, then it will have among the best negotiating power for medicines in the world. And it will be able to secure um, not just hundreds of millions of dollars, but actually billions of dollars in savings every year, um, which will allow us to have better coverage for everyone mm -hmm. at, at, interestingly enough, at lower cost, which is exactly what we see in countries like the United Kingdom with their NHS places like Australia with their national prescription drug benefit, they do this. They have a national level negotiation for, for universal coverage. And it will, if that comes to fruition or when it comes to fruition, because the government said they will introduce legislation next year, um, that has the, the, the possibility of protecting everyone who's currently uninsured or facing high deductibles under their existing drug plans, but also consolidating that negotiating power, which is ever so important when dealing with um, manufacturers of medicines that yeah. surely have value, but they also, manufacturers of medicines have their own negotiating power, which we need to be able to balance out. It's a tough one. It really is. Uh, Steve, great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.